Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Over 40,000 people die to gun violence in the U.S. every year. This is 10,000 more per year than just a decade ago. Diving into the details of all this unnecessary death produces even grimmer statistics. Firearms continue to be the leading cause of death among children in the U.S. There were 656 mass shooting incidents in 2023. Add to this our near monopoly on female homicide, with 70% of all femicides in high-income countries occurring in the U.S., This level of preventable death by suicide, homicide, and accident is a standard unmatched by any wealthy democracy. Enter the AR-15, an innovation in military ground warfare, a gun that is lighter and less error-prone than all of its predecessors, with the capacity to fire small-bore bullets that move with such speed and devastating lethality that even a lightly trained soldier can use the rifle to overwhelming effect. Reporters for the Wall Street Journal, Cameron McWhorter and Zusha Ellenson, begin their historical account, American Gun, the true story of the AR-15, with the question of how this gun came into existence. Following the life of the inventor, Eugene Stoner, McWhorter and Ellenson, tell the story of how one man's invention overcame the bureaucracy and red tape of the military to transform American combat. That history, which is told with a novelist's skill with character arc and intrigue, is then intertwined with the twinned existence of the AR-15 in American civilian life. American Gun pivots halfway through from its historical focus on the lifespan of one weapon to the consequences, intended and unintended, to allowing the endless reproduction of that gun and normalizing its presence and its inevitable reign of violence in American life. Profiling gun lovers and those whose lives and bodies are torn apart by its omnipresence in our lives, McWhorter and Ellenson reveal a history of one gun that continues to unfold as a metaphor and unlikely reality of a country overcome by gun violence. It is a necessary book that will have a lasting impact on our one true American exceptionalism. Cameron McWhorter is a national reporter for the Wall Street Journal based in Atlanta. He has covered mass shootings, violent protests, and natural disasters across the South. He is also the author of Red Summer, The Summer of 1919, and The Awakening of Black America. Previously, he reported for other publications in the U.S., as well as Bosnia, Iraq, and Ethiopia. Zusha Ellenson is a national reporter writing about guns and violence for the Wall Street Journal. Based in California, he has also written for the Center for Investigative Reporting in the New York Times Bay Area section. Welcome to the show, Cam and Zusha. Thank you so much for having us. 
I'm so pleased that you're here. I think this is such an important book, and it is a, it, it's a big book, but it's a book that reads very quickly and very intensely. It's the, it's the history of a very specific rifle, its invention and its repercussions. But the gun problem in the country is incredibly multifaceted, with millions of firearms moving through society in different ways and with different purposes. What was important to you both about focusing on this single and singular weapon? And maybe, Cam, if you want to start us off. Uh, yeah. Uh, so thanks again for having us on. I would say the result of focusing on the AR-15 was, was purely uh, a consequence of our reporting. Uh, Zusha is based in the San Francisco area. I'm based in Atlanta. We're both working for the U.S. News section of the Wall Street Journal, and we cover breaking news and uh, politics, et cetera, but we also cover, uh, unfortunately, a lot of these mass shootings that have been taking place in recent years, and we kept running into the AR-15. We kept we started texting each other and calling each other when there would be a mass shooting, asking if it was an AR-15, and increasingly that, the answer was yes. And uh, we, we were intrigued by that, and eventually uh, we were paired to do a story for the journal, uh, a, a, what ended up being a business story about the popularity and the rise and sales of the AR-15. Uh, but we, we found so many interesting aspects to this gun's history, the social history of this gun, from the Cold War to today, and including the inventor and wars and generals and spies and cultists. It just went on and on. And then all the political battles that have arisen. And then also all the people who've been impacted by this rifle's presence in our society that we felt it, it had to be a book. Mm. Zusha, did, did you feel at all that uh, giving such careful uh, attention and research to the gun was in any way sort of antithetical to your having to cover the violent repercussions of the gun's existence? Or, or did it feel important to do that historical work be because of that very fact? Yeah. In, in our reporting, as Cam said, we have covered all the major mass shootings. And in doing so, I've gotten to know many survivors of these mass shootings followed them over the years, watched them try to recover from their devastating injuries. Um, and as we started to look at the history of the gun that was often used in these mass shootings, it was extremely important for us to know the real history behind it. There are so many myths out there, you know, on both sides of the gun debate about this gun and what it can do and how it originated. So I think one of the most important aims for us was to bust all those myths and once and for all write down the true history of this controversial weapon. So the first half of the book follows the unlikely rise of Eugene Stoner, the inventor of the AR-15 and its military twin, the M-16. His is really a quintessential American story. The inventive genius of a single man takes on the bureaucratic machinery of the military to forever change the way rifles are used in combat. And this doesn't even begin to cover the unlikely life of that gun as part of a civilian arsenal. 
Would you tell us a little bit about that American story and how Stoner became the central figure for you in the history of that gun and also in in the the multifaceted lives of the AR-15? Yeah, as we, you know, do- dove into the history of this gun, we discovered that the inventor was just an incredible, fascinating, unlikely character in all of this. Eugene Stoner, he was a Marine veteran in the 1950s. He had fought in World War II. He was a uh, a guy who thought only about gun designs. Whether he was out to dinner with his family, he'd be drawing gun designs on the tablecloth at the restaurants. His wife would say, stop writing on the tablecloths. And he would say, it's fine, they'll wash it out. It's all he thought of. He thought about guns. His wife once said, um, that, you know, he's a pretty quiet guy, but if you talk to him about guns, he would talk about them all night. Now, Stoner didn't have any formal training in gun design. He had no college education, in fact. But instead of limiting him, that allowed him to try out ideas that no one had ever tried before and really allowed him to revolutionize firearms. We found out more about his character, and he's not what you might think about the guy who's behind this gun and all of its imagery. He's a very gentle guy. He never swore. He never spanked his kids. When he was really upset, he would say, boy, that frosts me. <laughs> he was known to wear a little bow tie and his glasses. He, he liked to wear a clip-on bow tie because it was the most efficient neckwear that he could find. A, a, a tie might get caught in the machinery. A regular bow tie would take too long to put on. And that really spoke to his design sensibilities. He liked things to be as efficient and simple as possible. At the time, rifles were made of heavy wood and steel. The military used an M1 Garand, this big heavy rifle that was a great triumph in World War II as we, you know, defeated the Nazis. But as time pressed on after that, there was a strong desire in some factions of the military to produce a light weight gun, a gun of the future. And in his garage in Los Angeles, Stoner began to think, how can I make this lightweight gun of the future? The first thing he did was replace some of the heavy steel components with aluminum. No one had really thought of to to do that before. And why was that? Well, aluminum was really just becoming a popular metal. He used it all the time during his day job making airplane parts. And he thought, why can't I make gun parts out of that same metal? He also made an incredibly efficient gas system. It basically uses the energy from each shot fired to reload the weapon and expel the spent casing. And he designed the system in an ingenious and very simple way that replaced a lot of metal parts with light, frictionless gas. And, you know, we were really lucky to be able to read a bunch of his personal papers. Um, We listened to recorded recorded uh, interviews that he had, and we, we were able to read uh, notes from his wife about his life. The family gave us really unprecedented access to his life, where he talks about you know his designs and all that sort of stuff. He got his big break. You know, his wife is always nagging him, what are you doing all the time designing guns? But he got his big break in 1954 when he met an oily gun executive at the range. And this guy told him he he was starting a little company called Armalite. And this is really where his ideas turn into reality. 
And a lot of people know the name AR-15. They, they think they know what the AR stands for. Gun control activists will often say it stands for assault rifle. Gun rights activists will argue back, no, it stands for Armalite rifle. In fact, both of them are wrong. In speaking to Stoner's daughter, she said the AR stands for Armalite Research. And the 15 stands for the 15th creation of this little Hollywood startup where Stoner worked. And the story of how Stoner's creation went from an idea in his garage to the military's weapon that they supplied every soldier is quite a tale. We can talk about that next. One of the major historical questions that you pursue in the book is how a weapon that was des designed for such devastating lethality ended up having an identical twin that was and is legal to own and use for any manner of private purposes. And I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about how corporate interests and then also um the rise of a, a sort of cultural movement around the gun turned this military weapon into something that is so recognizable as uh, something that a civilian can own. And Cam, do you want to start with? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, we're you know, so the gun was eventually adopted by the U.S. military, and they renamed it the M16 for standing for Model 16 because it was the 16th uh, infantry rifle that they had adopted, and that gun. Uh, was used in Vietnam. Uh, there were lots of problems there, but uh, so the gun was really not liked by veterans. They didn't. They they had a real bad feeling about the gun. Also, we lost the Vietnam War. That also played a role in their feelings toward the rifle. And as Zusha mentioned, it was made with all these sort of new parts. You know, it it, it looked very space age. It didn't look like a traditional hunting rifle. So a lot of Traditional hunters didn't want to see this gun either. So Colt, which was the original manufacturer of the, of the AR-15 slash M16, tried to sell a civilian version of the gun. Now, to be clear, a, a military version of the rifle has, you can, you can, it has a switch in which you can fire semi-automatic, which would mean every time you pull the trigger, one round flies out. So you have to pull the trigger each time you want to fire a round. Uh, or you can flip it to automatic. Uh, uh, there are other sequences you can have there too, but if you flip to automatic, if you hold the trigger down, all the bullets will simply cycle through, all the bullets in, in the magazine. In the United States today, under current federal law, you it's, it's heavily regulated to own a what is considered a machine gun, which would be a gun that would fire fully, be, have the capacity to fire fully automatic. So what would be the circumstances under which a, a civilian could own a fully automatic M16? So, yeah, I could take it. So it's an interesting history, a little sideline, but kind of we can get back to M, the, the AR-15. So in, in 1934, Congress was worried about bootleggers and um, gangsters of that era during the Prohibition era using these Tommy guns, fully automatic Tommy guns in their crimes. And they made it very difficult for any civilians to get their hands on it. Basically, you had to register it with the federal government, pay a tax, and go through a pretty onerous background check. Then in 1986, Reagan signed a law that banned the new manufacture of new machine guns. So basically, you have a limited supply of machine guns, and anyone who has them has to go through a lot of, jump through a lot of hoops to get them. 
And what that means is that their value has gone way up because there's a limited number of them. And so they cost anywhere from $40,000 to $60,000 each. And there's, a, there's no more, you can't get a new one. So that means they're really in the hands of wealthy collectors and not so much in the hands of uh, people who would go around shooting people. Of course, there are, uh, not to get too far into it, but of course, there's illegal ways to make machine guns. But legal machine guns are generally in the vaults of wealthy people. And, and whereas the AR-15, which can only, the civilian version can only fire semi-automatic, uh, is uh, widely available. And I think it's important to point out that that soldiers for generations have been taught by their drill sergeants and others to to fire semi-automatic in combat unless things are really going badly. <laughs> and so almost most of the soldiers who go into combat fire semi-automatic. And to be clear, the, the, the ammunition they're using, the speed at which that, that, that the bullets fly out of the, out of the weapon, uh, the, the shape and the design of the weapon are virtually the same. And so how does this weapon that is virtually the same end up moving into civilian life? How do the kind of the, the presence of corporate interests combine with a kind of social pull um, end up with this being something that's so present in American life? As I alluded to, the gun after Vietnam and traditional gun owners did not like this this weapon and it and and efforts to when when the gun came out of patent in 1977, some small gun owners started to produce uh, the an AR AR-15s for civilian sale, and there was a lot of resistance. You know, there we have stories in the book of you know uh, gun companies, uh, you know the executives in these small companies going to NRA conventions and getting people giving them the finger and yelling at them. People did not want, uh, traditional gun owners did not like this gun and veterans did not like this gun. So for many years, the only people who were really attracted to it were extremists or survivalists, some gun collectors. It really wasn't, it wasn't selling very well, frankly. And that's, but that started to change in the 1980s, particularly in the late eighties and early nineties, when we started to have a lot of discussion about what to do about what was described at the time as assault weapons. There were been some shootings involving AK-47 style guns, and there was a concern by a lot of law enforcement that we needed to do something to restrain how these guns, you know, how these guns were getting into the hands of criminals, and they wanted to figure out a way to stop that. And there was a lot of political battling going on, then there was this assault weapons ban that developed in the early 90s, and Bill Clinton eventually uh, supported it, and um, there were other Democratic leaders who supported it in Congress, including our current president, Joseph Biden, who was then on the, uh, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. They pushed this uh, assault weapons ban, which included the AR-15, and in theory, it was to ban these guns from civilian sale. Uh, as we point out in the book, that didn't happen. Uh, what in fact happened was the gun, uh, first of all, a lot of gun owners took, a, took great interest in the fact that the federal government was trying to ban certain guns from them, and especially the AR-15, which was American invented and American made. 
So a lot of them rushed out to buy uh, versions of the AR-15 just before the ban went into effect. And a lot of the small, these small gun, owner, gun companies that were making AR-15 were worried that this was it. They were, they were out of business. But in fact, they found pretty quickly that if they made slight alterations to meet the letter of the law and to make modifications to some of the cosmetic requirements of the, of the federal legislation, they could be back in business. And very quickly, they were. So in fact, sales of AR-15s went up throughout the, uh, the 10-year ban. And the whole time, there was this notion among gun groups and gun owners that somehow the federal government was, was denying them this gun, and it took on an allure. And it grew in not only in sales, but also in just sort of the, this mythic importance for the gun rights movement. And then we get to uh, we get to two thousand to two thousand and one when 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 there was nine uh, eleven, and I would have uh, I'll have Zusha take over from there. Yeah, so there were huge political and social transformations that brought this gun from a niche product that was sort of scorned by the gun industry to a blockbuster product that really became the financial savior for the gun industry. The first cultural shift was 9-11. You had, during that time, you know, a great rally around the flag moment. Everyone was supporting our troops going off to the Middle East, most people. And what gun were these new American heroes carrying? They were carrying the M16 and its cousin, the M4. And suddenly that bad taste of that gun from Vietnam was washed out of everyone's mouth. And veterans coming home from those wars wanted to buy the civilian version of that gun. It, it was familiar to them. It made, gave them comfort, made them feel safe. And then people who admired veterans, people who wanted to be like soldiers, saw that gun and they wanted to buy one too. So this, this sort of military stance that the country had at that time really sparked an interest in this military-style gun. You know, people were wanted to buy Hummers, camel clothing. It, it really fit into that. And as sales started to increase, another big political thing happened, which was that the assault weapons ban, which had been in place since 1994, lapsed in 2004. The reason it was not renewed is because the political coalition that had pushed it through in 1994 was no longer there. One of the key, well, I would say the crucial linchpin for passing the uh, assault weapons ban was support from law enforcement. Police during the 1990s did not like criminals having these types of weapons on the street. They felt outgunned, and they felt they didn't they didn't want to be shot at with the AKs, ARs, and all that sort of stuff. But by the time that 2004 rolled around, pol police on the streets had seen that the assault weapons ban was pretty ineffective and hadn't done anything, and they didn't think that it was worth their political capital to support some sort of law that hadn't really done much. And secondly, they decided they would rather expend their political capital in getting money so they could buy themselves AR-15s to protect themselves. So that part of the coalition wasn't there. Another important part of the coalition, suburban women who had supported a lot of gun control were far more concerned about terrorism at that time. And, and sort of the whole debate over global terrorism really crushed the gun control debate. And the gun control movement was in disarray 
Meanwhile, the gun rights movement was ascendant. They had grown, you know, NRA had grown by millions of members for a variety of reasons. And then, of course, we had a Republican president and a Republican Congress who were, and the Cong Republican led Congress was not interested in getting this through at all. Um, so the federal assault weapons ban lapsed. And even though it hadn't done much to prevent this small renegade group of gun makers from building AR 15s, it had prevented mainstream publicly traded companies from getting into it just because, you know, for them, they have reputational risk issues and they you know, publicly traded. So once that was gone, the big gun companies decided, all right, we're getting into this fast growing market. And we spoke to a lot of gun executives. We were able to look at internal presentations from the time. And they were just all really eager to get into this market because the AR-15 was the fastest growing segment in the gun market. Um, around this turn of the century, gun companies were really struggling. They were getting hit by a lot of lawsuits. Um, there was a real decline in hunting. There was a decline in um, demand for handguns because crime was declining. So they saw in the AR-15 a, a product that they felt they could make a lot of money in. And that's not just a cliche. The gun was actually wildly profitable because of the way it was designed. Stoner had designed it to be easily easy to put together, take apart, manufacture, and cheap to manufacture. In fact, and so uh, and it's easy to fire, right? It's very, it's it doesn't have a big kickback, and it's you know someone who's not even particularly strong could operate it. Oh yeah, absolutely. So yeah, let's talk about the appeal of this gun. So we talked a little about why business, gun industry was interested in building and selling them. Um. The gun, once people got it in their hands, for whatever reason they bought it, they realized that it was very easy to shoot. Um, they had very little recoil. Um, you could squeeze off a lot of shots very quickly. Uh, one thing, when you have a semi-automatic weapon, right, if you're able to keep on target and the, you know the gun doesn't go flying up into the air because of the recoil, you can shoot follow-up shots much more quickly. And that's the case with this AR-15. You can really shoot follow-up shot, follow, follow shots very quickly. Um, and the reason it's so easy to shoot is because of the way Stoner designed it and because the bullet, the 223 bullet, is a very tiny bullet. And so it's just not that much recoil. Um, what did people do with this gun once they bought it? They did early surveys of AR-15 owners. Most of them used it for target shooting. It was not a great hunting gun because it's not great for sh uh, hunting large game. You know, eventually they made it so you could modify it and you could use it for large game hunting. But the original version with the 223 bullet, people were using it for target shooting. People kept it in their homes because they felt it would be good to defend their home with. Um, it, it was not largely used for hunting. Uh, another thing that people really loved about it was that they felt they could tinker with it. So you know, a lot of guys on the weekends, they like to play with their muscle cars. They like to fix their motorcycles. This gun, unlike any other gun that came before it, you could modify it. You could switch out parts, switch out the stock, switch out the pistol grip, modify it however you wanted it. So it came to be known as Legos for adults or Barbies for men um, because of that, or kind of an erector set for men, they called it. Uh, so that's what really appealed to people. And then Certainly, politics just juiced this market. So in 2008, uh, Barack Obama was running for president, although he was extremely moderate on guns because he's a pretty savvy politician and realized he wouldn't win him a lot of uh, uh, votes in the sort of swing states. The NRA launched this all-out, multi-million dollar ad blitz saying he was going to take everyone's guns. 
And AR-15 sales just went bonkers in that election year. Mm-hmm. And AR makers realized that this gun, more than any other gun, really um, was sensitive to the fears of the American public. And if there was a Democratic presidential candidate calling for assault weapons bans, or if there was a shooting, followed by such calls, sales would go through the roof. If there was, you know, some major panic, like even Y2K, if you remember that one around the turn of the century, people ran out to buy this type of gun. So it's a really cyclical, the sales of this gun are really cyclical and really tied to current events. And it's now tied, like, very firmly politically to a, you know, to a movement, to the MAGA movement. It, it was present in all kinds of ways that you show in the book in the January 6th uh, insurrection. And so, to my mind, this this is a very dangerous turn in the gun's life. When you start to have a, a political party associated with a gun that is uh, paramilitary, let's say, and designed for lethality, you, you start to hearken back to 20th century fascism and the ability to draw on kind of mobs of armed people. Does it does it feel to the two of you that the the gun's history is now making a a a sudden turn towards something darker that has historical precedence? Well, I, I would I wouldn't um, I, I, maybe I wouldn't be as gloomy as as you painted it, but I would say that there are you know I, I think there's with this massive increase in sales of the AR-15. You know we we've gone from you know few hundred thousand uh, in civilian hands prior to the assault weapons ban today. There's well over 20 million. We don't know how many million, but well over 20 million. Uh, and so the gun, ha- lots of these gun owners are responsible people who are not out to hurt anyone. And they keep their gun in a gun safe and teach gun safety to people and, and practice it themselves. So they're not uh, that... It, that's not the problem. The problem is there, as you pointed out, there are people who are drawn to this gun as a symbol, as a totem almost of gun rights and defiance of federal authority and, uh, or whatever other, uh, view they, they care to have. A lot of the mass shootings that have taken place, uh, in recent years have been by people who were, had, who were, who were very disturbed, uh, and had maybe had mostly personal reasons. But there's also people who were self-declared Islamic Islamic uh, terrorists. There were people who uh, who were white extremists, supremacists. I mean, we've had a range of people drawn to this gun and embraced like David Koresh, as you as you point out in early, right? And this, but this gun has become a symbol to them. There is a phrase in ancient Greece, molalabe, which means roughly come and take it. And it's a, there was a battle, uh, in which the Spartans were facing the Persian, an overwhelmingly large Persian army. And, uh, the King was told, drop your weapons. And his response was come and take it. And, um, this has become a battle cry, uh, for the gun rights movement. You will see it on bumper stickers with a silhouette of the AR-15. It's a, it's a surreal merging of historical events where you'll have a silhouette of an AR-15 rifle and then a, the Greek phrase that was supposedly said, uh, according to one historical account by King Leonidas of Sparta, uh, you know, basically saying, come and take it. Uh, and as you pointed out on January 6th, 
There were flags being waved, a Confederate battle flag with the, with the silhouette of the AR-15 and the phrase, come and take it. Another flag with the, with the silhouette alone saying, come and take it. We've had extremists practicing with AR-15s who were planning to shoot up surprisingly a gun rally that was going to be held in a, a, that was held in Richmond Virginia the the federal authorities intervened and caught those people but the gun rally uh, yeah the, they wanted to the irony the yeah i mean there are elements out there that believe that this are drawn to this weapon in part because they see it as a tool to sow disorder uh, mm. and there mm. have been ex, you know extreme groups showing up at uh, various rallies that we've, you know, and protests that have been held in recent years with these guns. Uh, and it has really become for them, you know, to point out on January 6th, there was the symbolism of those flags, but there were also, uh, the Proud Boys were, you know, they had stockpiled AR-15s mm -hmm. at a, at a motel, not, not far from, you know, just over the, the, the Potomac. For and part were, two, which thankfully yeah. we didn't, we didn't see. No, they were, yeah, they were asking, you know, com asking their quote commanders, unquote, you know, to come, if they can come in. Uh, so we were very close to uh, serious violence. And if, again, the design elements of this gun developed by Eugene Stoner for the U.S. military for, to help our soldiers and our allies fight communist insurgents primarily, it, it achieved all those design goals. And it is a, very impressive creation when you really start to understand it. And I, but, but now the, the way this gun is being used is a way that would make Eugene Stoner, would, would, he would be gobsmacked by where we are today. And I think that's, to me, that was one of the more interesting parts of researching and writing this book was that we have a, a device that was really like, like, like we've been saying, you know, it was a, this guy was a, a, an American hero and, and slash inventor in the classic style of Alexander Graham Bell or, you know, or Steve Jobs or some sort of weird combination of those two. I mean, he's off in his garage tinkering away because he wants to have an impact on the world and he thinks this would help, you know, and here we are. Once you create something, once you invent something, it's a Pandora's box and that it, it, it completely leaves the inventor very quickly. Eugene Stoner, as we document in the book, lost control of the gun very quickly uh, it, as, after its creation, a few years after its creation, and it takes on a life of its own. And, and how it's going to impact our culture and our society, he could never have predicted. Hmm. That gets me to part two of the book, in which you, you go broad looking at mass shootings in particular and, and tragic events of violence that are connected to the AR-15's prevalence in American life. Zusha, would you talk a little bit about how the two of you decided to organize the second half of American Gun uh, around largely the, the violent repercussions of the AR-15? Certainly. I mean, there's a number of reasons one is because, you know, this is sort of the tragic ending of the story. Um, you know, it begins, as Cam said, very hopefully with the uh, guy pursuing the American dream in his garage. And it ends with, you know, people getting, sh innocents getting shot at concerts and schoolyards. Um, the other reason we wanted to highlight those stories was because we'd covered a lot of them. 
And we felt that the stories of the people who survived these mass shootings was really getting lost. You know, you cover a mass shooting and the TV cameras come in, president comes in, everyone sends their well wishes and their donations, and then a couple of days later, it's, it's all gone. So one thing we were really interested in is following these people. What were their lives like after? What, what was the impact on their lives? What, what did they do? How did they cope? How did they overcome? How did they survive? And some of them are very heartbreaking but inspiring stories. Um, for instance, in Sandy Hook, we follow a family that lost their beloved six-year-old son, Ben Wheeler. The, the parents are artists, um, and they are moved to become political activists after the Sandy Hook mass shooting. And they go to the state, and they ask for changes, and they are amazed when the state changes a bunch of gun laws. Then they go to Washington, D.C., and they lobby the Senate and the Congress people for more changes. And our story follows them into those meetings in the Senate building and what that was like for them and how the senators responded ultimately by telling them, no, they couldn't do anything. And there's this really striking scene that David Wheeler, Ben's father, told me about. He was sitting in a meeting with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican, and they were showing him pictures of Ben and telling them, telling the senator stories about their children and Grassley was looking down at the ground. He couldn't look them in the eye, and he was crying. He was telling him he had grandkids. And then when they asked him, you know, can you um, vote for this bill we're supporting for universal background checks, Grassley told him no. Um, he couldn't do it. They said, why? And he said, well, you know, the calls are coming into my office saying that my constituents in Iowa don't want it. And, and he says you, you wouldn't understand. Right? Isn't that what right? And they just keep pleading with him. They say, well, "Why can't you just use your position of power?" And he finally says, "You wouldn't understand." And this just made David Wheeler so angry. You know, we have this quote in the book where he says, "Who is it that's not understanding?" Yeah, yeah. I, I, I. That moment was a jaw dropper in the book, and I'd not heard that story before. I'd heard the stories of the Sandy Hook families petitioning and and talking to every possible person they could and finally being rebuffed, but I'd never heard that one and it infuriated me. And the the total lack of understanding or or perhaps understanding all too well, but being too cowardly. I mean, if it ultimately, if, if your position is about uh, protecting and thinking of the, the best possible outcomes for your constituents, and at the end of the day, you won't do it, because you're afraid of losing your job or losing power, then the system is really, it's quite broken, I think. Certainly. I'm, that was one of the things we really wanted to explore in this book. So after 1994, when the federal assault weapons ban passed, the NRA went on a real campaign of retribution and a lot of Democrats, moderate Democrats, and even uh, yeah, some extremely conservative Democrats at that time, very rural um, who had voted for it were targeted, and that they took the House from the Democrats in '94 in the midterms. Republicans were in control for the first time in 40 years, and that was in large part because of this assault weapons ban. And ever since then, 
politicians were sort of looking over their shoulder, worried that if they voted for gun control on the federal level we're talking about, that they too would lose their seat. Um, and they were very afraid because gun owners are very dedicated, single-issue voter block. It's something that the liberals do not have. There is not a voting block, at least at the time, dedicated to gun control. It's changing a little, and we can talk about that in a second, but certainly around the time of Sandy Hook, um, gun owners were a far more potent force in the political spectrum. A lot of people like to talk about how the NRA is, if you're on the liberal side, they, you know, they say the NRA is this big, bad lobbying machine. They're the, they're the reason that nothing can get passed through Congress. But it's really because um, you know, people in Congress worry about keeping their seats. And there are polls that show that conservatives are much more likely to pay attention to their position of their representatives on guns than liberals are. Liberals have a much broader um, menu of policy options that they're looking at, and guns is pretty far down on the list. Certainly, there's a great swell of support for gun control after mass shootings, but after that, it kind of dissipates. And in the book, we really try to profile some of these gun owners who were really dedicated to the cause and, and try to really explore why they were so upset. And in speaking to them, you know, these are guys uh, like Chris Waltz in our book who they own guns, they keep them in safes, they train their kids on how to shoot guns, and they do it very responsibly. They never commit a crime. And they feel like they should not be punished for some insane psycho going and shooting a bunch of uh, school children. As Chris Waltz told Cam, who interviewed him, he said, if, you know, if all AR-15 owners were psychos, you'd all be dead. There's 25 million AR-15s out in the country right now. So it was important for us to explore that very strong gun rights movement to help explain um, sort of the political outcome on the federal level. Yeah, there, there's this interesting parallel that develops uh, and, and in some ways opposition and in other ways a, a, an interesting way of tracking the continual history between someone like Chris Waltz and then uh, and then Valerie Callis Weber, who was a victim of the gun when she was shot at a mass shooting incident. Uh, Cam, do you want to talk a little bit about how that kind of parallelism in the book works for you and what it was like to interview Chris Waltz, but then also Valerie Callis Weber? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's important. Um, one point I'd like to add is it's important to note also we have in many issues in our country, we have these older leaders who've been around for, for a long, 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 long time. And their ideas uh, focus on what solutions they thought worked in the past. So uh, on the Republican side uh, and on the NRA side, we had Wayne LaPierre, who was really pushing for more guns uh, everywhere, uh, including the AR-15. And then on the other side, you had people like uh, Joseph Biden, President Biden, who constantly talk about an assault weapons ban and uh, new ideas are things that new ideas need to be brought to the fore and they, they need to be agnostic, uh, not a, you know, not Republican, not con Democrat, not conservative, not liberal ideas that work. And I think that's where toward the end of the book, we start to talk about that. But Chris, Chris Waltz, is someone who is, was ardently for the AR-15 and had trained on the M-16 and 
trained others on the M16 in the Army. And when he retired, he went into contracting, defense contracting, then he kept the AR-15 and would shoot regularly. And after Sandy Hook, he was horrified by what had happened, but but he was more terrified and angry that there was discussion of another assault weapons ban. And that led him uh, angrily in his pajamas one night at his kitchen table to start um, a Facebook page just to sort of vent on this issue. And very quickly that he was suddenly had tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of followers. And he actually started a business in which uh, he would sell AR, initially AR-15 parts and decals and things like that. And then pretty soon he was selling full AR-15s. And it's been a business ever since, since Sandy Hook. And it's been a very profitable one for him because there was such a groundswell of, of animosity toward any attempt to, to rein in this gun. And he is um, he's sort of a quintessential American AR-15 advocate, maybe the quintessential AR-15 advocate and, th- and there, are, there are many others, and they feel very firmly that this, gov- this gun, because of its lethality that you pointed out and its rapid fire, make it a, a modern musket. He has a flag in his office of the three percenters. It's an American, mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. American flag. I don't know if you've heard of the three percent. Sure, yeah. I had not <laughs> when I saw the Sadly, flag. I have. <laughs> what is that? I don't know what is it. But that, you know, that's this notion that there were, that it was really 3% of the colonists who actually led to the American Revolution and actually fought in the American Revolution. This notion that that it takes a vanguard of sort of super patriots to preserve a real America and whatever that means. And they, um, they embrace this gun as the modern musket to do that. You know, they, they will be minute men and they will, you know, they, they can't use a hunting rifle to fight, to fight the government, but they can use an AR-15, which obviously has frightening prospects. But then you yeah. get, you know, and the, and, and the thing is, there are people like that. There are people uh, fiercely acting in the gun control movement. And then there are people like Valerie Callis Weber, who was just uh, you know, an older woman working at a county office building, a county, a county government uh, uh, office in San Bernardino County in California, who's just has to go to a, a, a party, uh, you know, sort of a Christmas party slash work event that she doesn't want to go to, uh, at, you know, in, in 2015. And she goes there and uh, two Islamic terrorists, one of whom worked in the county government, come in with AR-15s and one of them shoots her twice and kills a lot of other people and wounds a lot of other people, but she's shot twice. And we cataloged, Zusha met her many times and cataloged her unbelievable, in my opinion, like incomprehensible efforts at recovery. And she's an amazing 57 person. surgeries and, uh, 3,500 hours of therapy. She was shot in the shoulder and she was shot in the pelvis and those injuries with two, so two bullets, uh, these are very small, uh, you know, tiny, uh, rounds relative to other guns. Uh, but they, once they get in the body because of the high velocity round, 
when these smaller bullets enter the body, they whirl around like a, like a tornado and they ping off of bone. They shatter bone. They shatter the bullets shatter and shoot splinters everywhere. They cause, uh, the hum- they cause bones that are trying to repair themselves to have sort of almost become hyperactive and produce extra, extra bones. She has to go through surgery in which they're chipping out pounds of extra bone that is sort of with the body just sort of wildly trying to repair itself from the, from the trauma it's just it's suffered. And she has all kinds of, she's an amazing person, obviously, uh, and tackles it with great humor. But she also has incredible challenges, psychological and and fighting with her insurance companies, fighting you know fighting with her doctors. It's a it's a tremendous, horrible story that I think ultimately leads to her coming to peace, hopefully with with what has happened to her and coming to terms with it. But she is a person who um, we wanted to 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 document her story because this is a person who had no real stake in, you know, she wasn't politically active. She still isn't politically active. She, and we write about people who were, who die in mass shootings. We would cover those, you know, this so-and-so passed away in this mass shooting. And that has a terrible trauma, of course, for the, for the family members. But what is it like to actually be hit by this gun and actually have to recover from the injuries caused by it? Uh, because people forget about those people and they really shouldn't because this gun is, these mass shootings involving this rifle are causing a ripple effect of trauma across our nation for, for years, for generations. Yes. And the, uh, so there's a, uh, a now fairly famous, um, Huffington post article that is it's it's a long interview with a trauma doctor, Amy Goldberg, who I, I think is at uh, Temple University, a hospital, and she is someone who sees constant gun assault and the damage that it does to bodies. I don't think that's a com- conversation that we have enough in the country. So splitting apart for a second the idea of someone who's worried about losing their right to defend themselves or overthrow the government and uh, instead thinking about what is the what's the literal damage that happens to a body when it's shot and and how that damage is different with the AR-15. And what does that mean when we say that that's okay, Um, as opposed to having a a handgun in your house that you use for defense, having something that is designed in a way to just um, damage so thoroughly the body that it, you know, luckily, you know, in Valerie's case, there is some kind of recovery. But Zusha, did you want to think for a second about like what the damage that bullets do to bodies and why the AR-15 in particular is a gun that is built to do the most possible damage? Yeah, so... But yeah, I'd like love to give your listeners just a little um, grasp of the overall uh, universe of firearms and kind of the damage they do really quickly. So most murders in this country are carried out with handguns, um, as we know, because they're the guns that people can easily conceal on themselves. Criminals like them. Um, but frankly, the, the damage they do is is much less in some ways than an AR-15, and that's because the bullet fired from a handgun is much slower. 
and it's rounder in shape. And so when the bullet goes into your body, it travels generally in a straight path and carves it sort of a narrow channel. So certainly if it hits a vital organ, it goes through the brain, it's going to kill someone. But the difference is that the AR-15 bullet, a two-two-three bullet, is, is a very small bullet, but it goes very fast, much faster, sometimes three times as fast as a handgun bullet. Um, and it was designed this way. So when Stoner designed the AR-15, the general who was very interested in this type of weapon gave him some parameters for the type of bullet it, it should have. And he said it should be able to pierce it pierce a um, metal helmet at 500 yards, I believe. So they wanted a very light bullet that could do a lot of damage. And so Stoner designed it that way. He had a tiny little bullet and he put a big casing on the back that had a lot of gunpowder in it. So it went very quickly. And what it does is, you know, it flies nose first through the air, if you can picture that. And then it goes unstable when it hits the body and it, it swirls around, like Cam said, like a tornado or like a spinning top. And that's really how it does outsized damage. Certainly, if you were shot by a hunting rifle, those have really large bullets that go pretty fast. And they are also designed to mushroom. That would do incredible damage to a human being. But, you know, as we know, a lot of people aren't shot by hunting rifles. They're usually shot with handguns in most cases. And in a lot of mass shootings, they're shot with um, AR-15s. And so it just does a great amount of damage, you know, with, with Valerie, it shattered her pelvis and it shattered her, um, shattered her, you know, sort of pulverized her shoulder. And just to give people sort of a, a, a bigger statistical picture of this, mass shootings are a very small percentage of homicides in our country every year, very, very small. But still, AR-15s are used increasingly in those mass shootings. We've seen it go from about five out of 120 before 2012 to now where we're seeing more than half of all mass shootings, the shooters are using AR-15s. And so, um, you know, people are looking at this gun more closely because of that. And doctors, as you said, are starting to speak out about the injuries they're seeing. So one of the things I wanted to close us with is you, you, talk with some researchers at Northwestern who point to a couple of policy changes that might reduce the number or lethality of mass shootings. And they they point to requiring a permit to own a gun and banning large capacity magazines. But I wonder in your research for this book, whether you feel like one, those had any chance politically, and two, whether you see other compromise ways of coming to terms with our our real epidemic of gun violence. And, you know, I'm 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 thinking about how other countries have managed to not with one law, but with a sweeping suite of laws, um, do what we claim that we can't. And I wonder if you saw something that might bridge the seemingly insurmountable gap between two ways of looking at this that, that might do some of that limiting of the, the violence and death. Um, well, I'll jump in to say that uh, there are, we do at the end, toward the end of the book, we do discuss various options that um, people are exploring and that it really is going to boil down to trial and error and trying different things. There's no quick answer here. Uh, despite sloganeering on, on, on various sides of this issue, 
that's not the, it's going to take a lot of hard work to figure out how we catch up to technology. Technology has brought us to a place that we, where we, we don't want a world where uh, we're constantly having these gridlocked political battles and where toddlers have to have mass shooter training. You know, this is not what any of us want. So we need to start trying things that could keep people who shouldn't have this gun, uh, keep this gun out of the hands of, of people who just shouldn't have it. And, I, and that's a very tricky, complicated issue. But there are people starting to look at things like raising the age limits for owning a semi-automatic military-style rifle in certain states, um, red flag laws in which laws in which people are not, people who are, have been saying disturbing things uh, to their friends or family or online could have their guns, people could go to court and have their guns temporarily taken away from them. Uh, that is obviously a tricky constitutional issue, but it has been tried in, in states and increasingly states are looking at that. There's also been a lot of res increasing resistance to that as well, but that is one way to try to reduce the, uh, the chances that someone who wants to go to war with society for whatever their reasons, their disturbed reasons, uh, is going to gravitate toward this type of rifle and use it in a, in a horrific, quick way. I mean, that's the thing. You can use this gun easily. The kid in Uvalde had never fired a gun before that day. The, ki the, ki the kids who, um, people who are using this gun can, can wreak havoc in literally seconds. You can fire off a lot of rounds. And that we, you know this from for grocery stores, classrooms, movie theaters, rock concerts, you name it. Anywhere people gather, this could happen, and it's on everyone's mind. I, I would just add one more thing, which is something that Cam usually says. He, he had this kind of revelation as we were studying Eugene Stoner. He, you know, he's an engineer. He tries all things. He has a real engineering mind to solving problems. He gets obsessed with solving problems. And as Cam says, we need to take that same approach to, you know, mass shootings and gun violence. We need to lay aside our politics and try things that work, no matter where they come from or whose idea they are, whether that means, you know, having more armed guards in places, which was suggested, you know, initially by the very pro-gun side, whether that means trying out red flag laws, which was, you know, proposed by gun control advocates, but ultimately embraced by some gun owners as well. We need to focus on practical solutions, and we also need to focus on what the real problem is. We need to care less about having more people gravitate to whatever side we're on. We, we need to get rid of the sort of team sport of gun politics and focus on practical solutions. Before I let you go, I, I would love to know if there were books that were personally important to you at the time you were writing this, um, or books that were essential to the, to the research that you think uh, others might be interested in having a look at. Um, I'll say that uh, this book was written in part because we didn't find a good social history of this gun. Uh, we, there were definitely good technical books about sort of the development of the rifle early on. Um, but there really wasn't, a, there was nothing telling the story of Eugene Stoner. There were some explorations of, 
of the development of the rifle and, and Vietnam, but not really cohesive. And certainly nothing, no one <laughs> had wanted to uh, tackle the, the complex social and political history of how this gun became the most popular rifle in America and the most despised simultaneously. And we were foolish enough to, to tackle that issue. <laughs> but, we, uh, but, you know, so the, that's why the book was written, because there wasn't a book like that. That being said, I would say as a very, very, as a boy, uh, I read a book called uh, Sideshow by a man named William Shawcross, who was about the secret bombing of Cambodia by Nixon and how that led to the rise of the Khmer Rouge. And I felt I was a little, I was a young boy, but I felt that that book taught me the, the notion of unintended consequences as Nixon wanted to stop, uh, communist, uh, Vietnamese soldiers from coming through Cambodia to get to Vietnam. It was a way to fight the, you know, fight the Vietnamese. And instead he led to the rise of the, the communist, the Khmer, the Khmer Rouge. And, uh, so that has always sort of haunted me. It's an important book. And then I would say Dexter Filkin's book, The Forever War, about mm -hmm. fighting, about his reporting in Afghanistan and Iraq and the fighting there and the complex chaos of unintended consequences that, that he uh, had to swirl around it. Yeah, so a couple of books that were really helpful in doing research about the history of gun laws and guns in our country. One was uh, reading Gunfight by Professor Adam Winkler. He gives a really good summation of, of the legal, uh, legal, important legal cases and how gun laws developed in the old West. Recommend that for anyone seeking to understand gun laws better. Another great book was uh, Misfire by Tim Mack. Really got into how well, the NRA uh, sort of started to crumble because of self-dealing and greed. Another great book was uh, Horse Soldiers which was by Doug Stanton, and that catalogs sort of the Green Berets going to Afghanistan. And in fact, we interviewed some people who appeared in that book about how soldiers use this gun in combat. That mm. was important. On a personal level, I would say throughout writing this book, I was reading Robert Caro, the LBJ series. He is the historian and writer I probably admire the most. I love how obsessed he is with his subject how he seeks to shatter all myths, how he wants to present the unvarnished truth. And those are things we strove to do in this history as well. Well, I would say American Gun is absolutely an unvarnished truth and a, a, a book that does difficult things. Um, and in particular, talking about a subject that is so polarizing, but in a way in which you you really you put to the fore truths historical truths about a certain kind of gun and then the consequences and as cam says the un unintended consequences of having a technology let loose into the world and i found it a absolutely gripping read i've read a lot on gun violence and i find this book to be different than almost everything else i've read and i i just can't thank you both enough for coming on and and talking about it Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris, for the really thoughtful discussion. Well, the pleasure was all mine. Well, that's all for me for now. My thanks to Wall Street Journal reporters Cameron McWhorter and Zusha Ellenson for coming on the show to talk about their history of the AR-15, American Gun. 
a book that is revelatory not only for the unusual history of one weapon, but for the ways in which our society has acceded to allowing that gun to circulate unburdened by regulations through the hands of civilians all over the country. You can find links to purchase American Gun, the true history of the AR-15, and all of Cam's and Zusha's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Thank you.